Wow, Brian Holland, that message this morning was so good for me and I'm sure for all of us. Thank you so much, truly. Thank you. Um, there's, there's something, we, we all know this, we exhort our people constantly, but the, the movements in worship are important. And there's something about clapping your hands. There's something, there's something you know, if, if a dog gets on your property and you're chasing it away, there's something powerful and, and ovation matters. And, you know, when you, there's so many different reasons that we lift our hands in worship. You know, if your kid ever came up to you with a dirty shirt, sometimes they just lift their hands to have it removed or, or it's surrender or it's victory and, and um, I, I, love the, I love the freedom that we have up here, and I love the, the response in worship, and, and it's just been awesome to worship with you and to lift our hands, to bow, to sing, to sit, to reflect. And this last song that you sang, it's one of my absolute favorite worship songs, but I, I had a special moment. Uh, I was in Norway recently. I was teaching uh, with a group in Norway there's a movement of God happening, and you know this, but there's a movement of God happening everywhere. Every country, every city, every state, there are pockets of, of, of God doing incredible things. And there is a, I don't know if I would say revival, but a true move of God happening in young adults in the country of Norway where it's like 2% Christian. And I was teaching with these young adults, and it was a retreat similar to this, and the my favorite song is The Goodness of God, and the worship leader broke out The Goodness of God. They sang it half the time in English, and then they sang it in Norwegian, and just sat there thinking, God, there's hope. And when there are young, passionate people just pouring their hearts out to Jesus, it's so hopeful, and it's so good, and our work is not in vain. And But man, thank you for for, for that tonight. And I, I would like to pray for us before we look at scripture and before we get into a thought. There's been a lot of talk uh, so far the last couple of days about rest. Um, you know, Jason started it uh, the first night. Justin's talked about it. Brian's talked about it. In fact, Brian quoted Jesus talking about it of come to me and I'll give you rest. And so with all this talk about rest, it just got me thinking about the theology of rest in scripture. And we know that in Scripture, the theology of rest essentially says that when we rest, he works. And when we appropriately rest, that's what Sabbath is all about. When we actually enter into his rest, we come out of his rest realizing that he's been working all along. Jesus said, my father is always at his work, and I am too. And I think it's just fascinating that in the sequence of creation, Adam arrived on the scene on day seven, which was the day of rest, which means you're made in my image. I'm going to commission you to manage the planet, and you're going to represent me to the world. And guess what? On your first day, you rest. And, and so it set this, this pattern and this idea that we must learn an appropriate rest because when we rest, he works. And I, I, I've been the the lead pastor at my church for 16 years. But when I got there, I was 35, and I worked with an executive pastor who was in his 70s. And he was telling me once, he said, I think sometimes as pastors, we need to learn the art of holy foot dragging because everybody's need feels so urgent. And when somebody, you know, they, they could have gotten help for months, but when they finally call you, they want to see you tomorrow. And we feel this pressure to step into a phone booth and come out as Superman and I'll, I'll, I'll meet you, you know, I'll cancel my day. And, and he said, I, I, I'm not advocating laziness 
or shirking our duties or not being available to our people. But he said, we're not Superman. We're not superheroes. And he said, if, if I change my day to meet you tomorrow, I'll probably have to solve your problem tomorrow. But if I say, I'll, I'll pray for you today and I'll meet you on Thursday, then often by the time Thursday rolls around, God has already worked on the problem. And then I just get to celebrate what God's already done in your life. And so what I would like to pray is this. Um, I want to pray this, that while you're here resting, that God would solve your problems. <laughs> so whatever email you received or a slightly ruffled relationship or got to have that meeting or the board's facing this or the giving's been down a little bit or whatever it is, I just want to pray that while we rest, while we uh, are up here, that God will do a work I thought of a quote um, when I was thinking about this. Martin Luther said something hilarious when he was asked about his impact in the whole Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said this. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no price or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Another time he said, all I did was drink beer in the pub with my friends while God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. And of course he's being humorous and coarse as Luther was very coarse, but, but there's truth to that. That's the theology of rest. When we rest, we wake up to realize that he's been working. So Lord Jesus, I want to just ask right now that Whatever my, my new friends here are, my, my comrades, um, colleagues, uh, co-laborers, partners, whatever it is that they're facing, whatever little challenge or issue or big challenge or issue is on the horizon in their ministry, would they come down the mountain and see that you've been working? So would you resolve emotions, offenses, bad attitudes, discouragement, people that are um, on the fringe with our churches, would you just so powerfully move that it's as if we've been working nonstop all week and let us go back to see that you are doing far more in our rest than we can do in our striving. So Lord, do some powerful, powerful things. Amen. So tonight, I, I would like to uh, start a, a thought with you. And I'm going to kick it off, we'll get to scripture in a second, but I want to kick it off by uh, playing a clip from a speech from a woman that I've recently uh, been made aware of, and many of you may know who this woman is, but she has deeply impacted my life. I, I shared some of my trauma with you last night. I'm in an incredible place, my church, my life, my family, other than we have this major wound that we're processing um, with my daughter's addiction, I'm in an incredible place. I'm actually in probably the best place I've ever been in ministry while feeling more pain over here than I have ever felt in ministry or in life. And this woman has been speaking to that so powerfully. Her name is Catherine Wolf. Have any of you heard of Catherine Wolf? Catherine uh, is probably 40 years old. She, when she was in her late 20s, she suffered a massive stroke, uh, unexpected. She had a health condition she didn't know about. She had a six-month-old baby, massive stroke that left her paralyzed on one side of her body. 
She went through just gigantic brain surgeries, a year and a half of, of therapy, shouldn't have lived, lived, and her husband uh, helped carry her through that time. She ended up having another baby several years later, and she has started a ministry uh, called Hope Heals, and she and her husband do camps for severely physically disabled children and their families, and it is glorious. It is like a slice of heaven seeing these camps, and uh, I have just fell in love with this woman. Jessica and I love her. We, we listen to her podcast. She was recently at Madeline's church, my daughter's church in Riverside, and so we got to go and, and experience her. Well, I want to play a clip for you. She spoke at the Passion Conference last year, you're familiar with Louis Giglio and Passion and 80,000 young adults getting together to worship and seek God. She, she gave a speech, and I, I want to play a clip from the speech and then use some of the things that she says to launch us into a thought tonight. So if you can just look up here and um, play it real loud. She's a, a little tough to understand, but um, I think you'll love it. So let, let me read those words again, just to have them in our thinking one more time. I love it. She says, may you see your life as a good, hard story that God himself is writing. May you open your hands to release old dreams and receive new ones. May you find the miracle you've been looking for has been right in front of you all along. May you accept the stunning capacity you have to endure because of Jesus who endured for you. May you live out the hardest parts of your life with a joyful rebellion against the darkness. Don't you love that? May you believe that the boundaries around your life are good and pleasant because God has uniquely assigned them to you. May your invisible wheelchairs somehow become avenues to a new kind of freedom because of Jesus, and may it be so for all of us. Amen. I, I, I love her phrase, and this is where I want us to land and think for a little bit tonight, where she says, may you see your life as a good, hard story that God himself is writing. 
I, I like that good hard. Uh, she's actually kind of branding that. That's becoming the theme for her ministry. She's, she hyphenates good and hard. So good hard is now one word. And, and I love that language because both of those can coexist. It's possible to experience the good and the hard at the exact same time. In fact, on her website, she says, we're disrupting the myth that joy can only be found in a pain-free life. We are survivors, communicators, and advocates. We've used our second-chance lives to champion the truth that suffering and joy can coexist in your good, hard story. I think that's a healthier theological perspective than the idea that all bad things need to be fixed. And God only wants to bring miracles and only wants to, to do good. The Protestant church, I think, needs a theology of suffering. That yes, we believe that God is good and he is for us and he will do the miraculous and most of his apostles were martyred. And I think that both can sit side by side. And I, I want us to just think tonight a little bit about the story that God is telling and specifically the story that we are telling ourselves and does the story that we tell ourselves about our life and our ministry and our circumstances, does our version of the story line up with God's version of the story? The story that we tell ourselves is incredibly powerful. There is a reason that our world today is obsessed with stories and storytelling and narratives. I mean, from the old, ancient, oral tradition, storytelling cultures to Netflix and Prime. And are you ever just stunned at the volume of shows that are produced? So my brother's a Hollywood actor. He was a Broadway star. Now he's a Hollywood actor. And I'm, I, I, I can't believe just the content that's out there. Part of it, I think we're just obsessed and addicted to entertainment, but it also speaks to something in the human soul. We are storied people. We are storytelling people. And when we hear lesser stories, it sometimes helps us identify ourselves in God's story. So when I watch this story, it helps me connect with what's happening in my story. And you and I are living a script. And as pastors, as leaders, as thinkers, we, we, we're, we, we believe certain things about how we're doing or how we're not doing. And it is so important that our version lines up with God's version because it is, it is absolutely true that sometimes there are multiple versions of the same story. And the multiple versions are all true but they're not all equally true. And it is very possible to live a script or a narrative that, yes, it's factually true, but it's not God's true. It's not God's truth for our story. And, and um, one version can diminish life. The other version can enhance life. So what I want to do is I want to give you two versions of three stories as just an exercise in seeing how multiple versions can be true, but not every version brings life. This can be liberating for us as leaders, and then as we live it, we can liberate the people around us. And so um, let's start in Psalm 105, verse 12. I'll read a few verses in Psalm 105, verse 12. Uh, this, of course, is the passage that rehearses Israel's history. 
um, just kind of walks through their whole track record, and it gets in verse 12 to discussing Joseph's advent in Egypt and how God sent him into Egypt. He went there as a slave, and then, of course, he rose to prominence, became second in command in e- Egypt, created a safe place for Israel to grow into a nation, and all the, all the stuff goes from there. So Psalm 105, verse 12 says, when they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake, he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. Verse 17. He sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and to teach his elders wisdom. Look at verse 17 one more time. He sent a man before them, Joseph sold as a slave. Those are really powerful words. He sent a man before them. Is that what Joseph thought was happening when his brothers plotted to murder him? Or when they had him tucked away in the cistern, and they were saying, no, let's not kill him. Maybe we'll just sell him to some human trafficking Ishmaelites. Did he think he was being sent by God as God's man? Or when the Ishmaelites carted him away, and then Potiphar, remember remember Joseph was 17, and Potiphar strolls into the slave market and sees this 17-year-old guy and checks him out like livestock. Did, Did he feel like he was being sent as God's man into Egypt? Or when Pharaoh brings him home, And Pharaoh's wife falsely accuses him and shatters his reputation. He ends up in prison. He's forgotten by everybody. Um, What story do you think Joseph told himself? What was the narrative that was probably running through his mind? It was probably all the same things we would think. How in the world could my dreams land me here? This was not in the dream. When the stars are bowing and the wheat's bowing and my brothers and my father's bowing and God, where are you? I I am abandoned. This is tragic. This is wrong. And yet, I wonder what story the angels were hearing. You know, we think of King David running from King Saul. There was a time when David described himself as a dead dog, as a single flea. And that was kind of true. And yet there was another version of the story where the angels were saying, wait a minute, the the, the root of of, of the the sire, the father of the line of of the Messiah is being fashioned. So so what story is is happening and working in um, Joseph's life where the angels see the story and they were probably saying, watch out, Egypt. God just sent one of his boys Yeah, slavery is the vehicle that got him there. The cruelty of his brothers is what got him there, but the cruelty of his brothers is actually the ark that's going to save the whole nation. Um, 
Now, this, this is more than mental gymnastics. To try and shift from one perspective to another, it's more than Jedi mind tricks. This, this is more than just positive self-talk. Words matter. Words are important. Our, our scriptures uh, begin with, in the beginning was the word. Hebrews 11.3 tells us that, that the universe was framed up by the word of God. Words create worlds. And we all know that. We all, we all know that regarding other people. You know that if you tell somebody something long enough, they'll eventually believe it. One of my really good friends is a pastor in Colorado Springs. Um, his father's white, his mother's Korean. And when he was a little boy, his mom spoke terrible English. So when he was about four, he would, he, he would spill his milk at dinner. And the mom didn't have the language to communicate, so she would say, I hate you, you're bad. Or, or he would drop something or break something or run in the house and stop that, you're bad. I hate you. Now, when you're four, she didn't hate him. When you're four, though, you don't have the capacity to say, okay, hold on, mom's learning the language. She doesn't quite understand the nuance of what I just did. No, you just assume I'm bad. Those words create a world inside us. <laughs> when I was 16, I fell in love with a Mormon girl on our high school track team. Her name was Regina, and I was so in love with her. And she, she broke up with me at a Mormon dance in her church parking lot. So awkward setting to begin with, a Mormon church. The mom drove me there in the station wagon, and you know we're all kind of just you know, trying to move in the parking lot. She breaks up with me at the Mormon dance. Here's what she told me. She said, you know, I, I really like you but you're just so boring. And when she said that, I, I, was, I was devastated. When we got to the dance, she wouldn't even dance with me. She was dancing with all the Mormon boys, and I finally had to pin her down and say, what's going on? And I, I really like you, but you're just so boring. Somebody said that words are like molten steel that go into a person's soul, and they flow into the soul, but then they harden, and they shape the perspective. And and I, I wish at that time that somebody had said to me, son, your personality is perfect for your calling. Your temperament, your personality, your gifts are exactly what God needed you to have for your calling. To a 16-year-old girl that only wanted to laugh and be silly, I was boring. I wrote poetry I wrote short stories. I walked in the forest. I was sensitive. And, and so I was probably so boring to her. But I'm not boring. But those words created a world in me. And for years afterwards, when we would get to a social interactive setting, something in me would freeze up. Do you remember the uh, a bolo, that, that, that medieval weapon where you had a, two balls connected to a rope and you kind of spin it and it hits the person and then wraps around them and binds them up? like we would get into a fun setting and I'm suddenly bound up by those words. You're just so boring. Well, um, my wife, Jessica, is the life of the party. She radiates joy and peace and kindness and love. She's one of the funnest. Is it, is it funnest or more fun? I don't remember, but she's more funnest. There you go. She, she, she radiates joy. And I remember in the early years of our marriage, and we were so in love, but I remember thinking, 
is she going to wake up one day and just say, hey, I really love you? Well, Jessica healed me, and God healed me, and time healed me, and now every chance I get, I tell young people, you are perfect for your calling. Um, In fact, I preached a message, and it's probably the best message I've ever preached, called Regina Was Wrong. (laughs) Because the words, to to break a lesser word, sometimes you need a greater word. And remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, there was deep magic, and then there was deep magic before the dawn of time. You need a stronger word to break a lesser word. Okay, but the point, though, is that we know it's true out there, and we know it's true with other people, but nobody talks to you and me more than we talk to ourselves. Nobody speaks to you more than you speak to yourself. Nobody's criticizing you or, or telling you you're not measuring up more than you. So we are constantly uh, rehearsing things about our life, and we're constantly hanging labels on our lives that sometimes don't measure up to what God was saying. Um, it's more than positive thinking. It's saying, what is truth, and is my story truly syncing up with truth? And thank God Joseph figured it out. At the end of his story, over in Genesis 45, I, I hope he knew this during the process. Sometimes we only see truth in the rearview mirror. Sometimes we only understand when we get sufficiently high on the mountain and we can see the view from above. I, I hope he knew this at the time. But at the end of his life, in Genesis 45, verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. It was to save lives, and then here he says it, that God sent me ahead of you. He wouldn't have balked at Psalm 105 where it says God sent a man sold as a slave. In verse 7, he says it again, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Both of those stories were true. He was sold as a slave. He was abandoned, mistreated, abused, shipped off to a foreign country where who knows what was going to happen. That was true. And God was also fashioning and sending the deliverer of Israel. That was true too. So if we have two options of factual stories, let's make sure we're syncing up with the story that God is telling. Um, Okay, number two. How about the story of sexual purity that we tell young people? So I grew up in church, grew up in youth group, grew up hearing a very specific message about sex. So one storyline regarding sexual purity that the church often teaches is, no, stop, wait, it's, it's bad until you're married. I grew up hearing messages that sex outside of marriage is complicated, it can have lasting effects on a person that maybe aren't positive, um, it, it, it can negatively affect your relationship once you are married, Um, wait, if you start down this path, it'll take you further. And so the primary story that I heard about sex was, yeah, it's it's a good thing, but not for you. And and you know what? There's truth to that story. Sex outside of marriage is complicated. Um, Sexual relationships apart from marriage can damage a person's intimacy in the future. Couples that cohabit do have higher split-up rates than people who 
who don't. So it's a true story. Um, but, and and there, there really is no such thing as casual sex, at least not initially. Anything special and profound can become common and commonplace, but not initially. So it's a true story, but, but, but there's another story too. There's another story that says sex is powerful, and it can be healing and restoring and rebalancing. It's so powerful, and it's so vulnerable that it needs to be handled carefully. In fact, God's desire is that the nuclear power of sexuality would be relegated and saved for a specific context. And that context is what we call a covenant, And a covenant is a relationship that takes the legality of a contract and merges it with the emotion of a promise. So a a covenant is more legally binding than a contract, and it's more emotional and passionate than a promise. A covenant creates both. So sex is glue. And, and, And when bodies connect at that level, souls connect as well. And so God's desire is to glue you to a place where you will be protected and the power of this thing can be released in a way that's healing and healthy and life-giving. Now, both stories are true, but the second one might be more compelling. I don't know if it's super compelling, but we've got to come up with a narrative for our young people that's more compelling than, no, <laughs> that, that, that's not a, a vision to live in your life. And so, so um, Again, this isn't wordplay. We are storied people. Our scriptures begin with story language. In the beginning, God created. And so as communicators, as wordsmiths and writers, and some of you blog and you write essays for your church and you write curriculum and you create small group content, story and words and syncing up with truth is essentially important. And I'll just give you one more. Let's go, to the, let's go to 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17 takes place after Absalom has betrayed David. He's driven David out of the city. David has left weeping. The, the whole country is just hemorrhaging. It's a rupture in Israel's um, uh, situation. And two men appear to Absalom, and they both tell him stories. Both of their stories are true. Both of their stories are factual. Both of them would get the job done, meaning they would wipe out David. So both of these men are telling Absalom, this is what you should do. Their names are Ahithophel and Hushai. And let me just read a handful of verses to you. And just as I read, listen to the language and the way these two uh, speak. Where did I tell you to go? Okay, verse 1. Actually, let me back up to verse 23 of the last chapter. Now, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. So, 17 verse 1. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he's weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. 
Verse 4, this plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. So that's the plan. That's the story. Let's go after him. We'll take him out. Issue resolved. Verse 5, but Absalom said, summon also Hushai the archite so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? Or if not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they are fighters, as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, wow, whoever hears about it will say there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found. We will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai used seven metaphors and vivid pictures of of bears robbed of their cubs and guys with lion hearts and, and, and an attack that's like the, the dew falling on the ground. He, he, t- he told a story. Both of them were factual. Both of them had elements that would have worked. And yet the best story won. The truer story won. And, and, and uh, if, have you noticed in biography, in the world of storytelling, there are authorized biographies and there are unauthorized biographies and you know that if you read an unauthorized biography it's not going to be quite as true as the authorized account if you're going to read the unauthorized biography of Tom Cruise you you want to take some of it with a grain of salt Uh, which version of the story are you listening to that's the whole thought tonight your father is writing an account of your life There's an authorized version of your story, and there's an unauthorized version. Both of them are probably factually true, but one of them is truer. Um, Hearts heal. Ministries revive. Perspective is everything. Um, My church is is big on um, therapy and and viewing God as the source of all healing. So there's, there's a metaphor I use in my church. We talk about the Gatlin gun approach to, to, to healing. Did you ever watch Little House on the Prairie? That was the only show my wife's parents would let her watch. They were super strict. But I remember watching Little House on the Prairie, and they, they, there was an episode where they introduced a Gatlin gun. Do you remember a Gatlin gun? 
like the, the first installment of a machine gun, but it was all these barrels attached in a circle. One barrel would discharge, and then it would shift, and it was the next barrel, and that was the first machine gun. So what, what I say at Hope all the time is, is let's take a Gatlin gun approach to life. So, so sometimes you need spiritual warfare. Sometimes you need fasting and prayer. Sometimes you need a nap. Sometimes you don't need any of that. You need to go for a run. You need to drink more water. You need to see a therapist. You need to take meds if you have a condition or a mental issue that requires medication. And there's still a lot of stigma in church around some of these things. But we talk constantly, shoot in all directions. A pill won't cast out a demon, but spiritual warfare might not fix a chemical imbalance in the brain. So we're big into therapy, and um, I don't have a therapist on staff, but we contract with therapists, and I interview them often at events. The, the thing about therapy is perspective. A really great therapist is able to bring a way of looking at a situation that aligns it with truth. And when we have the knowledge of truth, Jesus told us it sets us free. And so some of our, our deepest angst is simply because the circumstances say one thing, but we haven't heard how God is viewing the situation. Do, do you remember old school record players? And I know they're making a comeback, you know, the vintage vinyls kind of a thing. But back when we used record players, um, I have a brother and a sister. I remember my brother and I would be goofing around, and, and if, if, we, if we were roughhousing too much around the record player... You know, our mom would, stop that, boys. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna make the record skip. Remember, if, if, you, bump the, if you bump the record, it, it skips. I, I think some of us need to bump the record. I, I think some of us have a song. Oh, they're playing our song. And sometimes the song needs to be interrupted. You need to scratch up the vinyl a little bit and, and move on to a truer version of the story. Um. God's writing a story. In, in Psalm 56, he says he actually writes your tears into a scroll. He's actually writing down the tears. He's actually journaling about the things that you're going through. In Malachi 3.16, says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Reminds me of how Brian was talking this morning about, about God as our Father and viewing us as his kids. And wait a second, make a note of that. I see the decision. She did what she could do. I see the quality. I see them showing up. I see the condition of their heart. Um, I, I, I know we all have our own personal agendas and we're wanting to hear from God in different areas, but I don't know, maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight, maybe you could take some time with your journal and just say, Father, am I listening to an unauthorized account? You know, I was real vulnerable with all of you last night when I mentioned my daughter. I'm in love with my daughters. Amber's been my best friend since the time she was born. And I remember I used to, because we've been dealing with addiction now for several years, and for a while I was telling myself a story that we had the perfect family and then it just went to, can I say shit at a pastor's <laughs> seminar? Is that, is that allowed? I don't know the rules at Hume, but it did. And, and, and my wife hated it when I would say we had the perfect family because she's like, no, babe, you can't say that. You know, we're not perfect. I, I have an I'm so grateful. I have, I have an incredible marriage. Our family has been so amazing. 
and then it fell apart with addiction. And so my story was, we were this, but now we're this. And, and Catherine Wolf has helped me realize, no, that's not, that's not the, the right way to view the story. We're, we're living a good, hard story. And we have had amazing years, and these are difficult years, and the story is still being written. And, and this matters. And so take your journals at some point, and I think the questions would be, am I, am I listening to an unauthorized account? And sometimes I think we need to ask the Lord, um, am I answering to the right name? It's interesting, in Revelation 19, Jesus shows up, and oh, it's just the picture of Jesus that you just, you just have to worship. He, he's got fire in his eyes, he's, he's got tattoos. When he's riding his horse, as he, throws his, you know, he throws his leg over the horse, and his, his, his robe must ride up a little bit because you can see the tattoo, faithful and true, on his thigh. Or no, it says king of kings and lord of lords. His name is faithful and true, and he's got king of kings and lord of lords on his thigh. Well, it also says that he has a name that nobody knows but he himself. And I kind of like the idea that God might have a name for me that you don't need to know. Nobody needs to know. It's just him and me. Um, I, I had a naming kind of a moment once with the Lord. And, and, and I know when, we, when we're trying to hear God's voice, I know it's subjective, but let's go with it. If we're trying to hear from God, he's going to speak to us. I was in the hot tub, and I was journaling, and I was just, just like, Lord, I asked the Lord, how do you feel about me? And, you know, a lot of people have never asked the Lord that question. How do you feel about me? And, and I just started to write what what came out and I felt like the Lord said son I see you as Richard the Lionheart and I don't know anything about Richard the Lionheart I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing historically but it did something to my soul now as soon as I heard that I heard another voice that was like yeah right yeah there's no way and I immediately started backpedaling from the word but it made its way into my soul and I realized wait a minute if my father sees me as Richard the Lionheart maybe I can make it Maybe I do have what it takes. And so I think some great questions are, how do you feel about me? What would you say to me? What are my marching orders in this season? What's the script I've been living? Is this the right script that you want me to continue living? What, what, what's my story? Um, what would God say about the good, hard story that you're living? Let, let, let's, let's end tonight um, I asked Brandon if he would lead us in that song, Blessed Assurance. You guys remember the song, Blessed Assurance? I love the part of that song. I actually love the fact that, that there's, there's a little bit of a resurgence of some of the old hymns. Um, in Matthew 13, Jesus says that a teacher in the kingdom is like a scribe that brings out of their treasure something new and something old. There are always something new being written from the Spirit, but we also hold on to the old and the things that, that endure. Blessed Assurance talks about, um, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. How about we just take a few minutes tonight and just declare, this is my story. And sometimes just getting realigned to truth makes all the difference in the world. Um, where I live in Southern California, uh, there, there are two main freeways, the 210 and the 10, and the 10 is horrendous. And there's these deep grooves in the, the road. And if you, you probably have them wherever you are too, but if, if you're on a freeway and you get near the grooves, if you touch the groove, it pulls you right in. And, and, and sometimes, that's what the, the internal narrative is like. It sucks us into, and so sometimes we, we, need, a, we need new grooves written into our soul.
So let's just worship and let's just ask the Lord to speak and minister. This isn't a striving kind of a thing. I got to know I've got, this is just touch me, fill me, change me, reset me, change the record, change the script. I'm ready for a new song. And joy can fill our lives. We can bear the hard, easier knowing that it sits alongside the good. And a whole wave of people. I don't know how big your churches are. I don't know all of that. But if we pooled everybody that we care for, if we could pool the ripple effect of this little room, there could be freedom spreading around the world to the degree that we live. So let's just sing and and, um, just linger for a minute or two with this.